welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on January 22nd, Lord's Day Service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. We thank you for your wise design that you have imprinted into the world and into human nature. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, make our minds sharp this morning and our hearts edified as we consider more about gender. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the forerunner to gender theory is feminism. And the term feminism is actually a relatively new term. The term feminism began circulating about 1910. Uh, At least that's when it was being used in the United States. But of course, feminism doesn't begin in 1910. Uh, Really, if you trace it all the way back, it probably starts with Mary Wollstonecraft in the late 18th century. Uh, And so, but feminism as a term uh, is about 100 years old or a little bit more than that. And I know many of you are probably familiar with the history of feminism. We've got first wave feminism, second wave feminism, and then whatever third wave feminism is currently. Uh, So we're not going to go through the, the, the basic standard history of that familiar history of feminism. Instead, we need to take a deeper dive in the changes that are happening in feminism in the 20th century. So most of these changes are happening within the context of second wave feminism. And it's it's three particular philosophical influences within feminism in the 20th century that really give rise to gender theory. So to begin with, we need to consider the three prominent philosophical currents that give rise to modern gender theory. And so the first philosophical current that gives rise to modern gender theory is existentialist feminism. Existentialist feminism. Now, to talk about all of this stuff, we're going to have to use a tremendous amount of jargon, uh, but we're going to try to make it understandable. So um, we're going to try to explain things so that you don't get lost in the jargon. But to, to, to invent something is to necessarily prop it up with jargon. So you really can't interact with gender theory without diving into the mess that is the gender jargon. And so uh, we're starting here by looking at existentialist feminism. And this is, this is an element of second wave feminin- feminism that really traces back to Simone de Beauvoir, who may be the most influential and prominent of the second wave feminists. Now, Simone de Beauvoir is French, but even though she's French, uh, she's a catalyst for American feminism. And it's her book called The Second Sex, which was published in 1949, which is really the the heartbeat of second wave feminism and which has some uh, key currents that influence gender theory. So in her book, The Second Sex, she argues that women are socialized to conform to male domination. And and as a a, a byproduct of that, women in this patriarchal society are nothing other than the other. So they're the other. They're this this part of human human culture that's just over here. They're the other. And the very concept of, of woman is this imposed notion of slavery. So women in this society are just objects. And they are slaves to men. 
And she said, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. And that statement is really the mustard seed of gender theory. Listen to it again. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. And when you let the patriarchal society decide what a woman is, then they are domestic slaves, she argued. Uh, but if we can define what a woman is, then we can make it whatever we want. And so a woman is whatever we want it to be. It's whatever we define it to be. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. So how did women as the other, that's what she calls it, women are the other, how did that come to be in her telling of the story? Well, De Beauvoir claims that domesticity is enslavement, as is biology, and those things are tied. And so women are the other because they are enslaved to their domestic role, and that domestic role comes about because of the biological role of giving birth to children. And so women are the other, as in they're enslaved to their domestic and biological role, while the men get to go out in society and have all the fun and do all the exciting things. And so women are just the other. They're over here, they're on the side, and they're forgotten. Now, De Beauvoir was French, as I mentioned, and she's an existentialist. And that actually contributes quite a lot to the conversation. It contributes quite a lot to gender theory. And so existentialism, it's a big word, but don't get, don't get confused. The concept is not complicated, so just follow me here. Existentialism, it's a school of philosophy that says that existence precedes essence. Now again, this is not complicated. Okay, so in a few minutes, you'll understand exactly what that means, so don't get lost. Existentialism teaches that existence precedes essence. Now, you know what existence is because you're living and breathing right now. But what about essence? What does that mean? Well, essence refers to the nature of a thing. Essence refers to the whatness of a thing. And so, for existence to precede essence is for the built-in nature of the thing to be subordinated to existence itself. And so things don't have a nature. They don't have a givenness. They don't have a whatness from God. And so existence precedes essence. And so remember last week we discussed how God made a human being as body and soul. And we talked about how what is a human being? Well, a human being is body and soul. And that body and soul are not disconnected from each other, but that body and soul are united to each other. It's the psychosomatic unity. We saw that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So what is a human being? In other words, what is the essence of a human being? What is the nature of a human being? Well, the essence or the whatness of a human being is that they are body and soul. And that definition, from a biblical perspective, that fact precedes the existence of any one human being. But existentialism flips that. And it says there is no received whatness. There is no received nature. A human being doesn't have a defined nature that we receive. And so you become a human being through your creative action in the world. And so the existence of human beings precede the definition of human beings in existentialism, which is, again, the exact opposite of what we saw last week in Genesis. So that's existentialism in a nutshell. So why are we talking about existentialism? Well, because existentialist feminism 
gives rise to gender theory. In Simone de Beauvoir's version of existentialism assumes that human beings have autonomous freedom. And there's another word, autonomous. So don't get distracted by the jargon in the terms. Autonomous here just means, if we could oversimplify it, just means choice. And so human beings have autonomous freedom. In other words, human beings have sovereign choice. Now again, it's obvious how that disconnects from Scripture where God has ultimate free will. God has sovereign choice. But in de Beauvoir's version of existentialism, human beings have autonomous freedom, have autonomous choice, which means there then is autonomy over biology, which means my choice trumps whatever my biology may be communicating about who I am. And so merely receiving biology is like receiving slavery. And so, de Beauvoir was arguing, you can't just receive your biology with this uh, constructed meaning that society has given to it. No, rather you, with your autonomy, you need to have your sovereign choice define your own meaning, define your own biological meaning. And this is freedom. And so you see in all of this that de Beauvoir, what she's after here, it's really a rather simple thought. She wants women to overcome the brute fact of biology. And they're going to do this through creative action. That is, they're going to create their own meaning. And the assumption of all of this, and we'll, we'll highlight this throughout the, the morning, but the assumption of all, is, all of this is that there is no God. I mean, when you're starting with the presupposition that there is no God, it's not that hard to get to a point then where, okay, well then I'll just be God, and I'll define what I want to define as it relates to my meaning or my biology. And so the assumption is, is that there is no God, there is no spirit, there is no human spirit, there is no soul, there is no divine origin, and as it relates to the world, there is no nature of things. There is no givenness. There is no whatness, because there is no God to put that givenness into the world. And so in that world, what are human beings? Well, in that world where there is no God and there is no nature of things in the physical world, people are just consciousness constrained by biology. People are just consciousness trapped by their biology. And so it's the disruption of the psychosomatic union. Remember, last week, body and soul, that's a human being, and the body and the soul unite together to create the essence of personhood. But in existentialism, when people are just consciousness trapped by their bi biology, that means their consciousness, however that's defined, and that's another trouble point for existentialism, but however consciousness is defined, well, it can be very different from biology. There isn't a built-in nature to a human being, so there can't be a, uh, there can't be a human nature that, that defines what we are. And so consciousness can be separate from biology. And if you know anything about gender theory, you can see very easily how that would lead to some of the gender theory ideas that are common today. And so Simone de Beauvoir's version of existentialism assumes that human beings make their own meaning. And that relates to their biology, that relates to their gender. Each person, she argued, must make their own meaning. Meaning is not found, meaning is not received, as we understand it in the Christian biblical worldview, but rather meaning is created. And this is that idea of autonomy that I mentioned earlier. And so the assumption is not that we are created by God. 
And since we're not created by God, we create ourselves. And if I can create myself, then I can make myself, I can define myself in any way I please. And so freedom in that way of looking at the world is self-creation. When you receive the givenness of the natural world, that's slavery. Wouldn't you rather be free than a slave? And that's Simone de Beauvoir's argument. And she also looks at the life of a woman, and she breaks the, the life of a woman down into six stages. I want you to notice how she thinks of womanhood in general. This is really important to understanding uh, gender theory. So she thinks the stages of a woman, of a, of a woman's life, are all negative. So she breaks it down into six stages. She says a woman's life has six stages. Childhood, puberty, adolescence, marriage, pregnancy, motherhood. And you know, one of the things she does in her writings is she, she looks at those six stages and then she describes them. And as she describes them, it's all very pathological. It's all very negative. Each stage, when it's, when it's operating according to the, the patriarchal construction, is negative. And Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, once said that a feminist is someone who dislikes the chief feminine characteristics. I think that's the single best definition of feminism I've ever heard. A feminist is someone who dislikes the chief feminine characteristics. And Chesterton wrote that decades before Simone de Beauvoir wrote her book. Yet, his insight is exactly right. He's describing exactly what Simone de Beauvoir is thinking. She hates being female. And that is really the genesis of gender theory. Simone de Beauvoir hates being female. The fact of biology, in her mind, is at odds with freedom. And in her mind, freedom is flourishing. And so the natural state of women is slavery to biology, and this inhibits meaning, this inhibits fulfillment. And so what she wants to do is she wants to drive a wedge between the notion of woman and female. And so she's going to divide woman and female into two separate categories. And again, you can see how this then eventually leads to modern gender theory. I mean, woman after all, according to Simone de Beauvoir, is just a social fiction. It's whatever it is that we make it. And so, woman is a social fiction that is wrongly attached to female biology. That's all been constructed. So what we need to do is separate woman from female and give new meaning to these terms. And so gender theory picked up on Simone de Beauvoir and rejected the category of woman as a certain biological definition. And we'll talk more about that biological definition in a bit. Now, one of the other things I want you to know about Simone de Beauvoir before we leave this existentialist feminism is to understand that she's a Marxist. And, of course, those terms get thrown around a lot now. But you have to understand that she is calling for a Marxist revolution. She wants a complete Marxist leveling, and in particular as it relates to women and gender. She wants boys and girls raised exactly the same. Because freedom is when women are allowed to live according to the masculine standard. And if freedom from femaleness requires bodily mutilation, then de Beauvoir is fine with that too. And so Simone de Beauvoir, operating here within the currents of existentialist feminism, is really the foundation for gender 
theory. And in contrast to her view that I've just summarized, Christians believe that there is a givenness to the world. This is so much of what we talked about last week. There is a givenness to the world. There is a, there is a nature. There is the nature of things in the world as God made it. And that givenness to the world demands an ethical response. In other words, duty and responsibility is assigned to us who live in the world based on what God made the world to be. But gender theory rejects that there is a givenness to the world. It wants an open-ended freedom rather than an inherited or received meaning to which we are responsible. And so if we were to boil it down to one simple statement, all of this adds up to this. The presupposition of gender theory is that one's telos is to define one's telos. Telos just means purpose or end. So one's purpose is to define one's purpose. And that's freedom. And so the first prominent philosophical current that gave rise to gender theory is this existentialist feminism. The second prominent philosophical current that gives rise to gender theory is postmodern feminism. Postmodern feminism. So, fast forwarding now from the 1940s to the 1980s, after the 1980s, feminism took a decidedly postmodern turn. And Judith Butler is the name to know. Judith Butler. Her work is at the center, still to this day, every gender studies program in the country reads Judith Butler. She is the canon of gender studies. And Judith Butler comes along and she shifts the academy away from women's studies to now gender studies. You look in the 80s and 90s, you see the rise of women's studies in these colleges. Now, many, most of those programs are gone. Now it's gender studies. And that's because of Judith Butler. And if you read Abigail Favale, Abigail Favale, who's uh, <clears throat> converted to Christianity, uh, but she was in the gender studies program teaching as a professor when she converted to Catholicism. And she, and she, she kind of walks through uh, how, uh, how the gender studies programs work. And she talks about how Judith Butler has a godlike standing in the academy. How people in the academy, especially in the gender studies programs, assume that Judith Butler is profound even though they can't comprehend what she says. Even though her writing is so dense and so incoherent, they just assume it must be profound. And this makes for a situation in the academy where people accept gender theory and they don't even know what's being said. They don't even understand the, the worldview being presented and, and therefore they can't really even agree with it. So Judith Butler comes along and she builds her theory off of Simone de Beauvoir but taking it to even more extremes. At the end of de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, she says, nothing is natural. And you can see how that could become a catchphrase for gender theory. Nothing is natural. And Judith Butler latches on to that phrase. Nothing is natural. And she adopts this as a foundational premise for gender theory. And so, remember, gender theory, it rejects the category of woman as traditionally understood. Why? Well, because they claim, as we saw with Simone de Beauvoir, that that definition of woman is just a social construct that's inappropriately tied to biology. Well, Butler comes along, and she interrogates the concept of gender, 
She interrogates the concept of female. And what's interesting, though, is that at least Simone de Beauvoir agreed with the category of female. Like, at least she understands that there is a female and there is a male. In fact, what you see in Simone de Beauvoir is she just wants to be a man. Uh, and so when you want to be a man, that means you have to have the definition and the essence of a man, and thereby the definition and essence of a woman. But what Judith Butler does is she comes along and she does not agree with the category of a female. Why not? Well, because Judith Butler's primary goal is to dismantle the normativity of heterosexual relationships. In other words, her entire project is to make it such that a man marrying a woman and then having a child should not be seen as normal. So her entire goal, her entire project, is to dismantle the idea of a man and a woman getting married and having children as being normal. And so the easiest way to do that, the easiest way to reject the normativity of the male-female marriage relationship is to just reject that there are even biological sex categories in the first place. And I think, well, how can you claim such a thing? It's, just look around the room. There's men and there's women. This isn't complicated. It, and, and honestly, that is probably the best critique. But how can she make such a claim? Well, not only is she indebted to Simone de Beauvoir, but Judith Butler is also indebted to Michael Foucault. And so really, Judith Butler's gender theory, uh, gender theory is built off of Simone de Beauvoir and Michael Foucault. Maybe you're familiar with Michael Foucault, the postmodern philosopher who lived during the 20th century. Well, Judith Butler is heavily indebted to him. Foucault is the man that's behind today's identity politics. So he basically invented identity politics, and many of you probably are familiar with what that is. Uh, and he's also, though, a prominent influence in Judith Butler's theories. And so based on Foucault's influence, Butler argues that ontology is a power play. In other words, to claim, remember last week we talked about how there's a physical world and then there's a metaphysical world. The physical world is here, we see it, you know, it's, it's, it's around us, we can touch it, we can hold it in our hand, we can experience it. But also in the way God made the world, there's a metaphysical reality. So there's not just the physical thing, but there's the real thing that stands behind and explains the physical thing. And that's because of God and his transcendence and his creation. Well, in... Michael Foucault's theory and, and Butler's use of it, she argues that that's just a power play. To claim that there's a metaphysical truth standing behind the physical reality is just a power play. It's not real. And so for you, you people, you people who believe in traditional, the traditional construction of the world and the nature of things, you who claim uh, that there is a givenness to the world in essence, the nature of things, that thereby means you're claiming that human beings have a biological definition. The only reason you're saying all that is because you want men to dominate women. There's no truth in that. You guys just made that up. There is no God. There is no metaphysical truth in the world. And so notice what she's assuming here. She's assuming that metaphysics is a fiction. She's assuming that metaphysics is just a power play. And that there's nothing, no, there, there's, no, there's no way to know the whatness of the world. There's no way to know the nature of things in God's world. And since there is no nature of things, there is no metaphysical truth in God's world, the only thing that remains is power. And I might as well use certain language to have power over you than letting you use your language to have power over me. And in all of this, 
when it's applied to gender, that means there is no natural meaning to gender. There is no received biological meaning or definition to gender. Rather, the apparent gender divisions we see around us are just performance according to society's expectations. And so the reason a boy plays with G.I. Joes and a, and a girl plays with dolls is because they've been taught to do so by culture. And they're just performing what they've been taught so that because there's less resistance if they just conform to what they've been taught. And she argues that there is no real woman and there is no real man. There, there's really no distinction between a woman and a man. The difference between male and female is like the, the difference in eye color. And so in all of this, remember her goal. Her political project is to dismantle the norms of gender and sex, the normativity of a male-female relationship where they can have a family and have children, and thereby to subvert the entire created order. That's the goal of gender theory, to turn upside down the entire created order. And that's partly why she and, and, and other strains of feminism want to decouple sex from reproduction. And this is a whole other strain we could go down uh, in, this, uh, in this discussion that we won't have time for, but, but she wants to, Judith Butler wants to decouple sex from reproduction. Why? Well, because once you do that, then you can overturn the idea that heterosexual reproduction is normal because sex isn't about reproduction anymore. And so now any type of sex can be okay. And so, Part of dismantling God's world, the, the, the nature of things as it relates to male and female, is the use of the new pronouns. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the insistence on these new pronouns, but I want you to understand the why behind it. So why do they insist on pronouns? What's this about? So remember, for postmodernism, there is no meta-narrative. There is no metaphysical meaning to the world. And of course, that then leads to big differences in language. So remember last week, we saw the point of language last week when we looked at Genesis. Last week, we saw for Christians, the point of language is to describe what is true about God, God's word, and God's world. But for a postmodern, language doesn't describe the nature of things because there is no nature of things. And so what is the point of language then? Well, then the point of language is to create new modes of reality. And that's why there's so much emphasis on pronouns and all the other political speech. And so, for example, they say creating, uh, they, they, they create new pro pronouns and then mandate their use. And they're constantly changing new categories and subcategories of identity and desire all through language. Why? Well, all of this is a concerted effort to enforce a new social truth, to create a new truth, a truth that doesn't rely on the nature of, thing, of things, indeed a truth that rejects the nature of things. So think about it. If gender is not based on material reality, then what is it based on? Well, it's based on nothing except my insistence on this language. And so a Christian is building their understanding of the world, their understanding of a man and a woman based on nature and what God has revealed to us in his word. But if you reject all of that, then the only thing you have left is language. And so all reality is hanging upon language. Language for them is their foundation. And so if gender is not based on material reality, the only thing it can be based on is these words. 
these pronouns. And so a woman who claims to be a man is a man in language only, not in fact. And so we must insist on the language because the moment you take down the language, you take down the whole thing because the language is the only thing propping it up. Their reality, in other words, is linguistically constructed. The foundation of all of it are just these words. There's no truth in what they're saying. There's no metaphysical reality in what they're saying. And so we must insist that you use our language. And that's why they claim that using the wrong pronouns is violence because it contradicts the thing they're inventing. And so they insist on the language because the whole delusion is propped up by nothing other than the language. So you have to understand, that's why they use the pronouns, and that's why you cannot use the pronouns. You say, oh, it's loving, they think this, you know, we don't, wanna, uh, <clears throat> we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And yes, that person is a person. They should never be dehumanized. That is for sure, but that doesn't mean you have to go along with the language because realize, the moment that language collapses, the whole facade collapses. And so we ought not use the new language. Now one other point I want to make about postmodern feminism before I move on, and this is particularly important, I think, as we look to the future and where all of this is headed. And so I mentioned how, Simone, or how uh, Judith Butler is dependent on Simone de Beauvoir and Michael Foucault. So Michael Foucault, I want you to see his connection to the LGBTQA plus. There's been a lot of questions about what is the plus? And of course, uh, gender theory, gender studies programs say, well, we don't know. But that's a lie. The plus has a very particular meaning to it. And uh, <clears throat> I want you to see that. So again, gender studies are dependent on Judith Butler. Judith Butler is dependent on Michael Foucault. Well, in 1977, Michael Foucault formally petitioned the French government to decriminalize consensual sex with minors, to decriminalize an adult having sex with a minor. And his proposal was not lowering the age of consent. His proposal was abolishing the age of consent. And it's no coincidence that the same year, the French newspaper Le Monde published an open letter calling for the release of three convicted pedophiles. Because as the article argued, three years of imprisonment for kisses and caresses are enough. Now, that letter that Michael Foucault wrote petitioning the French government was signed by Simone de Beauvoir and her husband, Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre, again, all the things we're leaving out. <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, uh, or the existentialist feminist and atheist, probably the most influential atheist in the 20th century. So Foucault, de Beauvoir, and Sartre all signed that letter. And what you have to understand is that in the academy today, in the gender studies programs today, Michael Foucault, Simone de Beauvoir, and Jean-Paul Sartre are superstars. They say it, we believe it. And so their theoretical assumptions not only lead to homosexuality, that's what most people think Michael Foucault is doing, because of course he was a homosexual and he's, he's arguing and trying to make that normal, but he's doing so much more. Their theoretical assumptions lead not only to homosexuality and lead not only to gender theory, but also, according to Michael Foucault's own argument to the French government, it leads to pedophilia. And so the plus, and LGBTQA plus is pedophilia. All right, so we're looking at the philosophical currents that 
have influenced gender theory. So let's reset for a moment. We're covering a tremendous amount of material today. If we are recording this, it, you know, we're, we're moving really, really fast. Uh, we want to get all this in. Um, so uh, I apologize for that. But what we've seen so far is first, the influence of existentialism or existentialist feminism. Second, the influence of postmodernism or postmodern feminism. And then the third philosophical current you need to see that influences gender studies is intersectional feminism, which connects to intersectionality, which perhaps you're familiar with that. So third is intersectional feminism. So when transgenderism came along in recent years, it actually it contradicted some of Judith Butler's earlier work, but that wasn't a problem for her because everything's just propped up by this invented language. So she quickly adapted her arguments and her language so that she can now continue to be the go-to person for gender studies in the academy. And again, note that since her work isn't based on reality, all I've got to do is just change the words and I can, I can change my language to, uh, to accommodate whoever I need to. But Butler adapted and expanded gender theory to include race and disability, which makes gender then a part of intersectionality. So intersectionality, I'm not sure how familiar some of you are with it, but intersectionality is a term that was coined in 1989 by the black feminist theorist Kimberly Crenshaw. And so Crenshaw, the origin of intersectionality is Kimberly Crenshaw was, a, was working in legal studies. And she was a legal, legal scholar, and she was studying how there, you know, we've got these various anti-discrimination laws. And anti-discrimination laws are usually identifying some sort of minority group that might be uh, susceptible to extra discrimination. And so she was studying that, and she noticed that there are gaps in our anti-discrimination laws. And in particular, the gap she was interested in is she said, okay, we've got these various protected classes of people based on race and sex and other things, but what if someone occupies multiple protected classes? Well, then they experience double discrimination and the law can't, doesn't have a way to properly account for that. And the law should account for that. And that then gives rise to the more popular version of intersectionality. So it's called intersectionality because think of your, uh, if, you've, if you've got a victim status you can claim for yourself, imagine it's a line. And then let's say you've got a number, another uh, victim status. Well, those two things intersect. And then let's say you've got a third one, that intersects. And the person who has the most intersections has the most power to speak. If you don't have any intersections, in the case of a, of a white male, you don't have any uh, room to talk. You're not allowed to talk. You, your, your job is to listen. But the, the, more, uh, the more victim classes that you can claim for yourself that intersect, the more power you have uh, to speak. So that's, that's intersectionality uh, as it's been popularized. So, uh, <clears throat> so intersectionality. In this theory of the world, it denies, again, it denies metaphysics. It manipulates language to try to reshape what is real. Uh, who, who says, who's allowed to talk? Not the one who has the truth, but the one who has victim status. So it's kind of redefining language and manipulating reality. And intersectionality requires that people be divided into groups. To claim a victim status, you have to be part of a group. So you have to claim you're part of this, you know, this minority group or this, this, this race or this sex or something like that. And in so doing, it really erases the individual because each person is seen primarily as a member of their group. And this also, intersectionality, it also erases the universal. 
in the sense of there, there's no longer a shared universal human nature that we can all point back to. Like in the world that God made, your body and soul. And so even if I disagree with your politics, even if I disagree with you on gender theory, I'm still a human being, body and soul, talking to another human being, body and soul, who are made in the image of God. And so we have a very firm starting point to have a conversation despite all of the other problems. But if you do away with shared human nature that's intrinsic to people, then you are erasing that universal meaning to human beings. And that's what intersectionality is doing. Now, it is also worth noting that uh, intersectionality does not emphasize class difference. And, and the reason there, I think, is because uh, it, it breeds in elite college academic circles. So, um, so it kind of ignores, it ignores that. So how does intersectionality impact people's view of gender? Well, it's because transgender people are the most oppressed. The highest victim card you can play, according to gender theory, is the transgender card. And so this all plugs into the intersectionality. So who's to decide who, you know, if you've got, a, if you've got a, a black female over here, and then over here you've got a black female who's transgender, who has the, who's allowed to talk and who's supposed to be quiet? Well, the transgender person gets allowed, is allowed to talk because they have the highest trump card. They've got, they're the most oppressed, and thus they're worthy of the most power. Now, going all the way back to Freud, Again, all the things we're leaving out, <laughs> Freud. But going back to Freud, you know, he thought of the human person as a tangle of longings, a tangle of desires. And then you've got Nietzsche. He portrays traditional values as sterile and as hypocritical. But Freud, for Freud, inner feelings, in particular sexual feelings, form the core of the authentic person. So for Freud, what is a human being? What's their sexual desire? And that sexual desire forms your identity. And if sexual feelings are the bedrock of personhood, then to question someone's sexual understanding is to deny their very self. And that's why you hear the argument. You know, if, you, if you challenge transgenderism on any level, it's a, you're, you're, you're defining me away. You're, you're destroying me. You're eliminating me. You're erasing me if you, uh, if you speak against, you know, transgender as a, as a legitimate category. Why are they saying that? Well, it's because what is a person? What is, well, a person is their, is their sexual desire, at least those who follow Freud. And to deny that is to deny the self. And if you deny the self, this is violence. So you people who are against transgenderism are promoting violence. And so transgenderism, as we wrap up this intersectional feminism portion, transgenderism represents the latest and most explicit stage in the secular modern project that is trying to free us from our condition as God's creatures. It's trying to wiggle free from, as they see it, the oppression of being created and being defined. It wants to define. It doesn't want God to do the defining. So we've seen three of the most prominent philosophical currents that give rise to uh, gender theory, existentialist feminism, postmodern feminism, and intersectional feminism. So then what has that created? You've got these, these different currents of, of, of ideas now forming and, and, and creating gender theory. So what has gender theory created? Well, I want us to consider four, uh, four 
claims that gender theory makes four myths. So this is four myths about biological sex. This is four untrue things that gender theory claims. The first untrue thing that gender theory claims is that biological sex is assigned at birth. This language is now everywhere. Biological sex is assigned at birth. You're probably familiar with this language. Of course, the implication here is, is that doctors and parents arbitrarily assign the sex at birth. Because remember, they deny that sex comes from biology. So to, to say this you know, baby's born and, and, and then you look and then you see if it's a boy or a girl and then you say this is a boy or a girl. Well, to do that uh, is to, uh, is, is, it's, it's a nefarious thing because, uh, because remember, male and female aren't real things according to gender theory. But there is a contradiction within the gender paradigm because they also think that sexual orientation is innate. Sexual orientation is if you're, you know, are you attracted to men or women sexually. So they say that sexual orientation is innate. It's something that people are born with. And that is a, that's a well-established dogma in the gender studies world. So I want you to notice the contradiction here. On the one hand, they think that biological sex is a social construct. It's a category that's arbitrarily assigned at birth. But then on the other hand, they think sexual orientation is something people are born with. Now, how does that contradict? Well, how is it possible to have an innate attraction to something that doesn't exist? Men don't exist, women don't exist, that's a social construct. But then, if you're a homosexual man and you're attracted to men, you're attracted to a man. Well, what is a man? Well, according to gender theory, men don't even exist. So how can I be innately attracted to that which is merely a social construct? The innate attraction assumes a fixed reality of what I'm attracted to. And so if a man is, an innately, uh, is innately homosexual, he's attracted to other men, which is impossible if there is no such thing as a man. So the, the, the first myth about biological sex is that biological sex is assigned at birth. And you see how there's an internal contradiction within gender theory on that. Another myth about biological sex in the gender theory is the claim that sex is not binary. Sex, and I'm sure you've heard this, that biological sex is not binary, but rather it's a spectrum. And what this means is that you know, there, there's not just male and female as two options. There's a whole spectrum of, of things in between. And remember, male and female, they're just social constructs. They don't even exist anyway. And so to say that sex is a spectrum means that the category of male and female do not correspond to objective truth about human nature. And there's more than two sexes. Now, what does, what does science say about this? There's more than two sexes, huh? Let's think about this. What does science say about this? Well, every human body has a reproductive system, and the reproductive system of a male is different from the reproductive system of a female. The male and female reproductive system is uniquely fitted and designed to reproduce. And so biologically, when you think of a male and female and their reproductive systems, you might think about the, the visual indicators of whether or not a person is, has a female or male reproductive system. But, but there's more to it than that, because biologically, every person has gametes. 
which are organisms' reproductive cells. And so the male reproductive system has small gametes. We call that sperm. And the female reproductive system has large gametes, and that's called ova, or egg. So the, the, the male reproductive system has sperm. The female reproductive system has an egg. And, and scientifically and biologically, those are the only two options. There is no third option. Every human being is born with a reproductive system that's either male or female. There's not three options. There's not more than three options. There's only two options, which means that sex is binary. That means it's one or the other. You're either male or female. You either have a male or female reproductive system. And, and that is not arbitrarily assigned at birth. And that leads to the third myth of gender theory, and that is that intersex people prove that sex is not binary. This is the, the go-to argument of gender studies, is, is basically to hear everything that I've just said and say, no, 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 you're wrong. Intersex people prove that sex is not binary. So what are we to say to this? Probably most people aren't really familiar with intersex and all of this. So we have to first understand what it means to say a person is intersex. And again, the term itself is often used ambiguously and wrongly within gender studies to, to imply that there's more people than there actually are that are, that are intersex. Um, <clears throat> but in truth, intersex is a biologically based variation within maleness or femaleness. It's not a third sex. It's, it's not something between the two sexes. It's not a combination of the two sexes. And so people in the gender theories world claim that 1.7% of people are born intersex. Well, where do they get that number? Well, that number comes from a study that was done by Fausto Sterling, where they use an overly expansive definition of intersex. They were using definitions of intersex that do not cause sexual ambiguity. Which, which made the number much bigger than it is. But when you remove those conditions, only 0.018% of people are born intersex. So there are people born intersex. This is a real thing, and people are born with it. 0.018% of people are born intersex. Okay, so what of these people? Well, understand that sexual development is a process. In other words, the development of the reproductive system is a process. There's a growth process as, as, as you know, you've got a child in the womb growing and developing and then they're born and then that child continues to grow and develop and the development of the reproductive system is a process. And it is within the realm of possibility that something can go awry in the development process. And when something goes awry in the development process, it might make it difficult to visually discern the biological sex of the person. Why? Well, to be blunt, it's because the genitals aren't fully formed. And so then, you might think, well, a male is determined by the visual indicator of such, and a female is determined by the visual indicator of such. But sometimes, when things go awry in that development process, those visual indicators are not clear-cut, and that's what happens with an intersex person. It's not obvious which biological sex they are. The problem, though, with saying that that proves that there's a spectrum is that in reality, yes, while it may be the case that visually it's difficult to discern whether or not they're a male or female, the visual signs of male or female are actually a secondary sex characteristic. They're not the primary 
sex characteristic. The visibility of the organs is a secondary characteristic. Gamete production is the key to determining someone's biological sex, especially in the case of an intersex person where the biological sex development is disrupted and so the visual appearance is a little different. And so every person is either producing large gametes, in which case you're a female, or small gametes, in which case you're a male. And whatever visually it appears to be, the definition goes back to which gamete you are producing. Now there are also, as we have to wrap up, we're about out of time, but it is also the case, a very rare case, that someone can have ovarian and testicular tissue. But again, this does not make them a hermaphrodite. A hermaphrodite is someone who doesn't, you know, it's a species that doesn't have separate sexes. Even when someone has ovarian and testicular tissue, they are still producing one gamete or another. So they still have a biological definition that is either male or female, and that is not biologically debatable. And so the sex of a person can always be discerned biologically. It just might not be able to be discerned through the visual indicators that are common. And again, this is very rare. 0.018% of people are intersex. All right, we're about out of time. Um, so I, I didn't get to several of the other things I was, I was hoping uh, to get to, uh, but maybe I can get this information out to you some other way. Uh, but it is time to, to close in prayers. We've got children that are about to come in. We don't want them coming in on this, on this topic for sure. So let me pray for us, and we'll dismiss for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and mercy to us. We thank you for the goodness of your design and creation. And we confess to you our desire to submit to it. And we pray as we transition now to our worship service that you would help us to worship you this morning with joy and gladness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed K-I-R-K dot com.